Section Zero of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tin Horns and Calico, a decisive episode in the emergence of democracy, by Henry Christman. Epigraph. Let it be transmitted to posterity that a free people dared to rise and vindicate their rights. Dr. Smith A. Boughton Acknowledgements As far as possible, I have tried to make the anti-rent farmers live and tell their own story in their own words and actions. I wish I could have put into this book all the others who had a part in telling it the descendants of the anti-renters, still living on the Hudson, in the Catskills, the Helderbergs, and the Taconics, and in the hill-towns of Schoharie and Rensselaer counties. The stories they told have been recorded here, but not the people themselves. There were the grandchildren of Dr. Smith A. Boughton. I shall never forget his granddaughter reading aloud until near midnight one August night, from a long autobiographical letter written by Dr. Boughton when he was an old man, and begging excuse for mistakes in orthography and composition, because, as he explained, age had impaired his mental and physical faculties. The letter had lain in his desk untouched since his death years before. When she had finished reading Boughton's own story of his part in the anti-rent struggle, she said, embarrassed at rebellion she had never understood, I wish he had stuck to doctoring. And there were the two grandsons, George and Charles, both proud of the blood of Smith Boughton, living in Alps, Rensselaer County, on intimate terms with the scenes familiar to Big Thunder. On a September afternoon, when the first colors of autumn were striking the hills, I drove up a Catskill Valley and turned in at a farm, Pastures and fields ran up the side of the hills, and down in a valley field the grandsons of Edward O'Connor were at work. At the barnyard gate the widow of Edward O'Connor's only son was bringing the cows in for milking. She was a gray wisp of a woman, and her face was lined and tired. She took me into the house, and after she had seated me before a window looking out upon the Catskills, she disappeared into another room. In a few minutes she returned with a tin box in her aged and gnarled hands. In it were yellowed clippings and papers about Edward O'Connor, verses he wrote to Janet Scott, and the powder horn he carried as a calico Indian. The dullness left her eyes as she searched her memory. For a long time she talked about Edward and Auntie Rent, about her own father who had worn calico, and her mother, who had sewed Indian costumes and carried food to the Indians when they were hiding after the Moses Earl riot. There was a whole summer and autumn of such people. Walter Liddell, down the valley below the Moses Earl farm, who sat by the fire one cold autumn night and pieced together with bit-by-bit -bit recollection the songs and ballads of the anti-renters, songs familiar to many ears when he had been a boy, but no longer heard in the western Catskills. Descendants of anti-renters walked with me over the scenes of riot in Columbia County, Rensselaer County, Albany County, Schoharie County, and the Catskills. 
sons of anti-renters proudly showed swords, muskets, tin horns, and fragments of calico costumes carried or worn by grandfather so-and-so in the down-rent war. Women rummaged in their attics and brought forth boxes of letters, carefully preserved for years, in an effort to aid this reconstruction of their ancestors' struggle against oppression. There were descendants of Mayhem, Peasley, Slingerland, Devere, Gallup, Boughton, and others. There was the late William Quay, who first roused my interest in the Indians, when a newspaper sent me to get his story as the last of the anti-renters. Quay was arrested in 1865, when Church sent troops on their last expedition to the Helderbergs. I shall never forget his vivid word picture of the hell we raised on the mountain. The stories these people told are interwoven here with facts dug from newspapers, court records, affidavits, legislative records, letters, books, and so on. I want to thank the following people who have taken time from their busy lives to give me valuable help. John D. Monroe, of Courtright, Delaware County, for material on the Delaware phase of the downrent agitation. Arthur B. Gregg, of Altamont, Albany County, for material on Helderberg anti-renters. Mrs. A. C. Mayhem, of Blenheim, for material on Blenheim Hill anti-renters. Dow Beekman, of Middleburg, for material on Schoharie anti-renters. John E. Boos of Albany for anti-rent newspapers and material on Judge Parker. S.C. Bishop of Coxsackie for a five-year file of the Albany Freeholder, which had been preserved by its editor, Charles Boughton. Laura E. Slingerland of Slingerland's Albany County for material including copies of speeches by John Slingerland, anti-rent congressman. Harry F. Landon of Watertown for copies of letters by Silas Wright dealing with anti-rent. Charles Ellis Grant of Margaretville, Delaware County for materials gathered by his mother on Edward O'Connor and the Delaware anti-renters. S. M. Pedrick of Ripon, Wisconsin for material on Alvin E. Bove. Granville Hicks, who read the manuscript in its formative stages and gave me many helpful suggestions. Phyllis Crawford for editorial aid, Zoe Fales Christman for help with research and editing and for constant encouragement, Miss Terry Mangiardi and Miss Nancy Chrysler for typing notes and the manuscript, and the following for various material and information, Herman Lockrow, Mrs. W.C. Little, Mrs. Andrew Little, Mrs. Lotta Merrill, Miss Grace Slingerland, Arthur Boughton, Robert S. Wire, Edna Jacobson of the New York State Library Manuscript and History Section, Clifford K. Shipton of the American Antiquarian Society, Mrs. Albert Demers, Mrs. Park Mattison, Homer Gallup, William Davis, Willoughby M. Babcock of the Minnesota Historical Society, J.P. Coughlin, publisher of the Waseca, Minnesota Herald, Alice E. Smith, curator of manuscripts of the Wisconsin State Historical Society, and Clifford Egan of Grafton, New York. Henry Christman Introduction There is an ever-recurrent necessity for the retelling of the past in light of the present thought. Events, like works of art, must await the judgment of posterity as to their importance. 
readers have often accepted as most authoritative the interpretation of historians who have had the advantage of observing during their lifetimes the happenings they recorded. Readers of today have come to recognize the fallacy of making such acceptance a general rule. The eyewitness writer is often too close to his material to realize its true significance. Tinhorns and Calico tells a story that has never been told in its entirety before. Nineteenth-century historians gave it little thought and less space in their works. In fact, their indifference to it was so great that through lack of feeling for what constitutes true history, they made Henry Christman's research labors more difficult than they might otherwise have been. His conclusion of them is therefore the more triumphant. For this narrative is a contribution of importance to American history. It records the dramatic final chapter of the struggle of the people of the United States against undemocratic and feudal practices with regard to the possession of land, practices that had been firmly established for two centuries. The right of a man to own and till his own land had already been recognized in much of Europe before the first settlers arrived in America, in England, feudalism had been abandoned for approximately a century. Yet the establishment by the Dutch West India Company of patroonships along the Hudson as a means of encouraging colonization denied that right. And the English rulers who succeeded the Dutch found it to their advantage to continue the system by allowing the patroons as manor lords to maintain their holdings and to grant great manners to deserving English subjects. The unrest that followed these grants developed into open armed revolt in 1766. Despite bitter differences in other matters, the manor lords were in complete agreement that the tenant farmers who rebelled against injustice should be suppressed and disciplined. The king's troops were used to accomplish this purpose. Ten years later, the great landholders were divided over the revolution against England. Many of the renters of small farms on the widespread manors hoped that the winning of the war by the Continental forces would result in abolishment of feudal manor practices. Others, less optimistic, dreamed that the manors held by the Tory landlords would be broken up into small farms, which they might own. Both were bitterly disappointed. The manor lords who supported the revolution were so powerful that when it ended they were able not only to continue themselves in the position of agrarian domination, but to acquire many of the confiscated acres of the landholders who had favored the English king. As the young republic came into being, none of its structural legislation affected the manor system. It remained not only a continual injustice— a monument to special privilege within the new democracy founded on the principle of equal rights for all, but a lasting menace to democratic practices. If it could exist along the Hudson, there was danger that it might be used as a precedent to justify a similar system along the banks of the Genesee and the Ohio. It might eventually affect land ownership practices throughout the nation." In one of the most comprehensive and efficient research studies of recent years, Henry Christman tells us in this book how this threat was destroyed, not by great and influential champions, but by earnest citizens of less than average means, whose chief weapon was a burning belief in the rightness of their cause. 
Having sought some of the sources from which Mr. Christman obtained his materials myself when preparing to write a historical study of the Hudson River, I can testify to the thoroughness, the persistence, the imaginative quality of his research. He has proved himself a detective of remarkable powers, both deductive and intuitive, in running down elusive evidence. Even more impressive, I believe, is his marshalling of his facts into a stirring narrative. Let it be admitted at the outset that he was wise, first of all, in selecting as his subject one of the most picturesque and dramatic of America's untold tales. Material, no matter how compelling, may be ruined in its presentation, as any intelligent lay reader of history can testify. Henry Christman has not only enlightened us on an important historical subject, he has written of it with honesty and with the ability to recreate the past in vivid, sure, and rhythmic sentences. I prophesy with much more certainty than I usually feel when I attempt to look into the future that this narrative will be the standard authoritative history of its subject for many years to come, it deserves to be read not only by those whose especial interest is the story of our country, but by all people who find interest in the study of dramatic human conflicts. I hope that it may be the basis for other works, novels, plays, motion pictures, for all of which it provides exciting materials. I believe it should be told again and again, because it tells most effectively the story of the triumph of the democratic spirit over the unjustified pretensions of aristocracy, pretensions from which to this day our country is far from free. The words of the heroic leader of the Calico Indians, Dr. Boughton, ring as true today as they did when he said them. If a civilization such as ours, which professes respect for the individual man, is to endure, it obviously cannot become the monopoly of an elite it must become, so far as possible, the common enterprise of all. The purpose of our society is not for the few of maximum strength and ambition to lead lives of Byzantine glory, but for all men to make the most of their common humanity. We are pledged to a general diffusion of culture, of independence and self-respect, and the means to a good life. Tin Horns and Calico is a history lesson and a thrilling tale, which I recommend to all Americans. Carl Carmer End of Section 0 Recording by Maria Casper